Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Judgment Call, a podcast where I talk to risk takers, adventurers, travelers, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. My name is Torsten Jacoby, and I'm your host. Today, I'm talking to Chris Tomsaf. Chris is a travel industry veteran with more than 20 years of experience and has a ton of war stories to share. I'm really excited to have him here today. We're going to talk about Chris's list of favorite countries. We are also talking about the travel industry during COVID and beyond. We'll find out why airlines, some airlines can't fly where they want to fly, and some airlines like Qatar Airways probably never will make any money. We also find out what happened to Thailand's tourism economy and what role freedom plays in economic development across the world. This episode of the Judgment Call podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. This is also my business. In case you're wondering, Mighty Travels Premium finds the travel deals you really want. Been doing for thousands of our subscribers is really just one thing is saving money on airfare. The same thing works for hotels. We also do this for five star, four star hotels, and of course, economy, business class, first class, premium economy tickets. And the best thing is, Many countries have opened up again, and Americans and Europeans can go to almost 80 countries again as of uh, November 15th, 2020. So give it a shot. Try it out for free. This is MightyTravels.com slash MTP. For everyone who's a little challenged with all these letters, just go to MTP4U.com. This is just five characters, MTP4U.com, and start your 30-day free trial. Really excited today to have Chris Thompson on the Judgment Call podcast. And Chris spent almost two decades with major travel and uh, travel tech companies like Emirates and Choice Hotels. And Chris is now an angel investor and uh, is uh, more hands-on as an entrepreneur. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm good, Torsten. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here, indeed. Uh, there's a lot of things we want to talk about today. So... We talked a little bit um, before the show. You mentioned that you grew up in almost a dozen countries. Um, and that's really rare. How did that feel? How did that happen? Yeah. So um, my father was a U.S. diplomat. and He met my mother on his first assignment in Thailand. And so I was actually born in Thailand and grew up uh, all over Thailand, Laos, India, Sri Lanka, Iran, and the U.S., Oregon, Maryland, Virginia, Illinois, New York, and Georgia. And I'm currently living in the Washington, D.C. area after having moved here from Dubai. So I uh, have definitely been around. Um, and to answer the question directly, um, it, it, it's awesome now, kind of having, uh, being able to look back on that experience. But actually, at the time, it was kind of tough. So, I mean, during the 1970s, 1980s, that's before you know, the internet before mass communication technology. So moving every few years to a new country, uh, to a new school, it was very hard as a kid to uh, keep in touch with people. You're not going to like write letters and things. Uh, but it really taught me something valuable, which was how to be really flexible and adaptable to new situations. So it wasn't until I was about 20 years old that I was able to look back on that and say, oh, wait a minute, that was really awesome. So you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, it's, uh, it, it's a really valuable experience. It served me very well in my career, but uh, at the time, it was tough, I won't lie. 
I can imagine. I can imagine a friend of mine had a similar upbringing, and for the longest time, he had trouble to really identify what uh, is his home. So what's the country or the nation he's he wants to associate with? Um, he had uh, like six or seven passports. And while well, this is great, you know, once once you become an adult, as a kid, you you really doubt yourself. Um, what's the what's the country you, you feel most at at peace with? It is definitely the U.S. Uh, so I feel like the U.S. is home. Uh, but that said, I'm comfortable in a lot of places. So having having lived in a lot of places and also having visited a lot of places, I'm kind of of the opinion that no place is perfect. Every place has pros and cons. Yeah, but I, definitely. I, I consider the U.S. to be home base. Yeah, I, I assume you you speak some Thai. That's one of the languages uh, yes. completely escapes me. Uh, so I, I learn languages quickly, but if I don't use them, I forget them. So at various points in my life, I have spoken uh, some Thai, some Lao, Japanese, Farsi, Arabic, and French. Wow. Um, but that doesn't mean I speak those today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, let's switch to Arabic. That's fine with me. Uh, no, Arabic is pretty, pretty terrible. Um, obviously, that's that's a big uh, challenge to keep keep the languages active. I have to say, but, but some uh, people remember them, right? I mean, they can just uh, keep them forever. But that's not me. I learn them quickly, yeah. but if I don't use them, they're gone, or at least they're put into the. Uh, the archive memory of my brain. Yeah, I wonder how this works, to be honest. I, I was pretty fluent in Russian for quite some time, and then I didn't use it for 10 years, and you know, it took me like a couple of days in Russia, and I felt like all the words are coming back. Not necessarily active, but I could understand pretty much the same vocabulary that I remember. So it's still there, but if you would have asked me before I went, I was like, uh, I don't remember a thing. I will not understand anything. It's, it's odd how the brain does that. You, you have a very interesting story also how you got into uh, travel and travel tech. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, so it's kind of funny. So uh, I think like a lot of uh, teenagers, at least in the U.S., you're not really, you're kind of given this freedom to kind of pursue whatever you want to pursue. It's not implanted into you like it is in Asia from an early age of, you know, you will be a doctor or something like that. Uh, so I was going to be a lawyer because that was the cool thing to do, yeah. uh, according to TV in the 1990s. But after I graduated from college, I went to Thailand on a vacation, and I accidentally got a job in the travel industry. And the way that happens is I was complaining about bad service from a travel agency, and since I was 22 years old, I didn't have an agenda, I didn't have a desired outcome, I was just complaining. And the general manager who I was complaining to asked me how long I was going to be there. And I said, two months. And he said, okay, you're hired. And I said, to do what? So you, your first job was in the Khalasan Road, the infamous one? <laughs> is that true? It was actually, it's a, it's a corporate travel agency is what it was. Uh -huh, okay. Mostly American corporate clients in Bangkok. And so, you know, he said, you're hired. And I was like, to do what? And he said, to fix it. And I guess I did, because my two-month vacation in Bangkok turned into four and a half years of living and working there. And it was great, and it launched my travel industry career. Law school went out the window, and instead I came back to get an MBA in the U.S., and uh, then spent the next 20 years in travel, and that's what I'm still doing. 
How did your parents react when you told them you're not going to be a lawyer? They, they must have not been very excited. I think uh, my mom probably would have preferred that I became a lawyer. She's Asian. My dad just wanted me to be happy. So, But, you know, to be honest, I mean, even a few years into that, uh, working in the travel agency in Bangkok, I still didn't think of it as a career. I mean, it wasn't, you know, probably until year three, year four, that I was like, wait a minute, you know, I can do this as a career. Um, you know, for the first two years, I was actually still thinking that I was going to be a lawyer, and this, like, travel stop was just that. It was just, like, a stop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the travel industry has attracted a lot of people that do have an entrepreneurial... Um, gene in their system and has drawn them in. You see a lot of, um, I mean, I myself studied law um, once upon a time, and uh, I feel travel always had this this opportunity, or this rich set of opportunity, that uh, if you come up with either a specific tool or a specific new workflow, or it could be a destination marketing, there was a lot of potential growth that you could harvest there. So a lot of people say travel, there's no money in travel. They've been saying that way before COVID. The, the obvious issue often is that people expect a lot of things for free. You know, you go to a travel agent and he helps you find flights and he helps um, with all your queries. And nobody wants to pay for that. I, right. It's, you go to a financial advisor, you go to a lawyer. Let's take the lawyer example. And a lawyer might give you a couple minutes for free on the phone. And then he says, you know, I'm going to charge for this. Are you still interested? And 99% of the time people are paying 400 bucks an hour. You would never consider this for a travel agent. And so it is online too. You know, I run a website where we charge for a subscription and it's been going well, but it's definitely an exception. I'm, I'm happy that it um, goes as well as it does. The most travel tools, people generally expect everything to be free. And uh, I find that out. Well, why this industry is so entrepreneurial, or maybe because it's so entrepreneurial, people have gotten rid of all the, the margins that used to be there, is, is an industry that seemingly thrives on really, really low margins. I think, I mean, I have an opinion on that, and, you know, it's just an opinion. But yes, you're absolutely right. Well before COVID, uh, the travel industry is notoriously famous for low margins. Um, but you know, if you look at the businesses that were typically associated with travel, uh, so airlines, uh, which is a very capital-intensive business, so uh, it takes a lot. Uh, you know, it, it's very tough to kind of earn a a good margin there. Or travel agencies which, uh, at least in the U.S., uh, traditionally attracted people who were uh, less educated and um, maybe more part-time workers, stay-at-home uh, housewives, people like that. So for a lot of people, it was a hobby. So it, it, the, the type of person that was attracted to the travel industry uh, yeah. it was you know, not kind of the cutthroat Wall Street investment banker type. So... I think there wasn't a focus on margins. And where you've seen higher margins in the travel industry, it's been with generally the technology side of things or in the hotel industry, actually from the real estate appreciation side of things. So those things that are creating the value, the leveraging of technology or uh, the appreciation of real estate, that is, uh, you know, th those are areas that I wouldn't consider traditional travel tourism 
hospitality per se, right? That's like technology or that's real estate. So yeah, but even for technology, I feel I feel that applies. Um, I know the founders of Hipmunk uh, kind of mm -hmm. mentioned that, and you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've done a couple of travel ventures. Uh, travel seems always to be the hardest to raise money. Mm -hmm. And also to uh, launch and then make it profitable. Um, there is definitely more user interest, so that's maybe a little easier. But in general, it's 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 hard to get these two curves together um, between what you spend and what you what you make online. And um, I mean, there, there's definitely exceptions like airlines. You know, airlines have been incredibly profitable, especially in the U.S. Just before COVID, um, Alaska was. Um, the highest, the highest um, profit margin of any airline. But I airline would say in incredibly profitable is relative, right? I mean, even the best year of yeah. airline profitability is really not that impressive in terms of margins. I mean, you talk about getting up, you know, 10, 12, 13 percent margin. They were 30 percent Alaska, the last couple of years. So that's I thought it was pretty impressive. I mean, obviously they're in a special spot and the economy was roaring. So. I, I mean, that's, you know, all the money they made, they're probably going to give back in the next couple of years. So it is yeah, hard as an airline in general. Uh, it was I think, you know, there are a couple of famous quotes, right? I mean, there was uh, Sir Richard Branson, I believe he famously once said that the best way to become a millionaire was to start as a billionaire and then start an airline. Yeah, right. Um, and then also Warren Buffett, I think, had said, you know, if the Wright brothers' plane had crashed, that would have been the best thing as far as kind of financial returns for the travel industry. Yeah, he, he wasn't a big fan of airlines, and then he bought into the market at the peak, and then he panicked, sold everything. Um, so he's he's definitely not a good airline investor. Whatever is driving this... There are very this. few people who have made a ton of money in travel. And, I mean, obviously there, there are many, but when I say very few, what I mean is as a percentage yeah. relative to other industries. Yeah, one, one issue is, and I, I encountered it a couple of times, is that airlines don't really have to be profitable because they call it a downstream market and you're probably the, the expert in this but given your time for Emirates but I've been talking to a couple of um, local carriers and regional carriers and they say you know if we make money or not is, is really not relevant because whenever someone goes to the country say Tunisia or he goes to Malta that person spends on average Three, four, five hundred dollars a day. That's for hotels. That's for entertainment. That is for meals, and that money is being recaptured by the government in forms of taxes. And they know right. these numbers are right because you know every hotel registers their guests and uh, they pay a certain tax. So the the flight, who might be only fifty bucks, a uh, hundred bucks, whatever it is, is is really has no relation to the total downstream revenue mm -hmm. that um, a government. Right. That works if, uh, in, in the context of a state-subsidized airline for certain countries, but in the U.S., you know, where the airlines are standalone entities and they're expected to be profitable in their own right, that's a different story. Why we have so many airlines that have gone out of business over the decades in the U.S. Right, but it's staggering the, the, the amounts, right? So, say an airline ticket, even an international airline ticket, is three, four, five hundred dollars on average, mm -hmm. maybe a little higher. But the downstream um, capture for a government might be, uh, depending on the destination and how ups, upscale it is, say the Maldives, is easily a thousand bucks profit. What I would say is uh, Qatar is a very good example of what you were describing. So Qatar Airways was launched, I believe, in like 1998 or thereabouts mm -hmm. and has never made money, never. And with the uh, advent of COVID, 
I don't want to say they never will, but they're not projected to make any money in the foreseeable future. But the way that those economics work is exactly like you described, uh, although it's, it's even more so than that. So the government of Qatar funds Qatar Airways, but the airline itself, okay, they buy or lease aircraft from Airbus or Boeing. They finance that with Qatari banks. The employees, for the most part, live in Qatar, which means they're renting or buying real estate uh, from government-backed real estate companies. They're spending their salaries on goods and services in Qatar. The airline is buying fuel from the state-owned Qatari Petroleum Company. Uh, you know, all of these things put together, right? It's just the economic is in, impact is, is huge. And that's even before you count the tourists and the businesses and the business traffic that arrives on Qatar Airways as a result of them operating in airlines. So in the net, it is absolutely a positive. So it doesn't matter, you know, if they lose, you know, a couple billion dollars a year. Yeah, I, I, I see it the same way. There isn't any drive for Qatar Airways to make any money. And... Uh, it is a negative tax on, on oil. They always say, um, you know, airlines mostly buy oil, and uh, this is where most of the Qatari money comes from, is from natural gas sales or oil sales. So mm -hmm. it, is, it is a good way to, to invest and have some control over it. It's better to buy just another mutual fund or just another part of GE, right? This way they have a competitive worldwide organization and they have a ton of control over it. Um, I think it's a very smart strategy, even if it looks a little weird that an Emirates um, maybe is moving out of this, but Etihad is in the same bracket. They are yes. uh, burning a yeah, couple so billion Qatar dollars is, over is here. most purely in that, right? Whereas Emirates is run uh, to make a profit, and Etihad, in the past anyway, has kind of been run with the goal of a profit in mind. Um, but uh, Qatar Airways, very clearly, not run with the goal of an airline profit in mind. How did you feel while you were at Emirates, given that they have very different set of objectives? Um, I know at the time already there were a lot of um, European and US companies um, objecting to Emirates flying the same routes um, that they do because Emirates is, or had very little incentive to make money. Um, at the time, like 10 years ago. Um, yeah, where we saw it when I was there, uh, there was a lot of pressure from the German government. Yeah. So Emirates was flying, if memory serves, like twice a day to Frankfurt, Dusseldorf, Hamburg, and Munich. And they wanted more frequencies. They wanted Berlin and uh, Cologne and some other places. And the German government was like, no. Uh, Lufthansa had one, maybe two flights a day from Germany to the UAE, mm -hmm. um, but you know, that was the way the, the bilateral agreement was structured. Uh, there was a similar kind of spat with the Canadians, and the Canadians didn't want to give Emirates more rights, but uh, for the most part, you know, people were okay with it, and when I say people, I mean countries, governments, they were like, okay, well, you know, it's stimulating economic activity. And a lot of effort was actually spent by Emirates to, on kind of public relations and government lobbying efforts to say, look, okay, yes, you know, poor Lufthansa, uh, they're not making as much money because Emirates flies so much to Germany. But if you look at the net effect to the German economy, that's a positive. I mean, you can't like kick out Emirates and, uh, and protect Lufthansa. I mean, that's great for Lufthansa, but it's not good for Germany. 
Yeah, yeah if, Lufthansa, if Lufthansa is good for Germany, I would very much doubt that. I mean, having lived there and seeing the, the efforts and uh, the monopolies that Lufthansa enjoyed inside Europe, it's gotten better now, but that, that cannot be good for economic growth and infrastructure mm -hmm. development. It's maybe good for the German autobahns because nobody can afford to fly, so you have to drive, but it's not good for all, everyone dying on the autobahns. But a lot of effort was spent on kind of you know, convincing the powers that be, whether that's the public or the politicians who were in charge of influencing policy on kind of the benefits of that. You're not going to get everybody 100%, of course. What was more interesting to me was after I, and maybe kind of amusing, after I moved back to the States and I was out of the airline business, I was in the hotel business, but I still followed uh, the airline business quite closely. And the U.S. carriers, in particular Delta, United, and American, took this big PR campaign to convince the American government and the American consumer of the evils of foreign subsidy uh, of Emirates, Qatar, and Etihad. But, you know, it's just so hypocritical. And essentially, these, these airlines in the U.S. are essentially saying, well, subsidies are bad if it's for my competitor, but if subsidies are for me, then it's okay. And then now, once COVID hit, and then those big U.S. airlines needed government subsidies, you do not hear them say a peep about subsidies are bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I I always felt that maybe this is a too radical position. I, I never understood how this logic works of governments restrict uh, the, um, the slots for an airport. Um, why is one country able to... Uh, I mean, I do understand they have the, the, the political um, authority over it, but Given just a little bit of market economic logic, we should all be seeing um, flights from everywhere to everywhere. Like most African countries, surprisingly now, they have fifth freedom rights. You can, you can do whatever you want in most of Africa. So Ethiopian can offer um, a hub in, uh, I don't know, West Africa, isn't it? In Togo, they just added a hub. Um, yeah. And they're just flying to Newark um, and to LA initially, mm -hmm. but then they gave up on this pretty quickly. Mm. I think the whole world should be like this, um, at least long term. I mean, we should all strive for this, shouldn't we? Yes, I agree. Uh, I don't see uh, that. You know, I think the biggest barrier is the money, right? So airlines have a lot of money at stake, so they give some of that money to politicians who will support protectionism, and that's what happens. Yeah, but, but shouldn't it long term become more free? It should. I mean, yeah. but this is not restricted to airlines. I mean, you see this in the hotel industry, too, with, like, in New York, the hotel industry lobbying to prevent Airbnb and similar things that are substitutes to hotels, right? So it, at the end of the day, it's companies, big, powerful companies, protecting their financial interests, yeah. which might be against the interests of the bigger country. But that's not the point. It's like the Lufthansa Germany. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they basically had to give up on the monopoly um, over time. So Ryanair and then EasyJet, there was always um, another competitor that moved in. And I think now they, they basically, it's, it's over. I mean, it's, they, they recreated it, the Eurowings. And uh, obviously COVID is a whole other challenge. And um, I want to talk about that in, in a minute, how the future of the travel industry is going to look like. But... Uh, in Germany, at least, it worked. Like the the, the principle of uh, a free market actually uh, came to bear fruit. Um, mm -hmm. It took thirty years, forty yeah. years. Yeah, but eventually it worked. I think in the U.S. we've seen that too. Even if some of these new airlines are pretty 
crappy to fly, um, like Spirit. Um, but I, I was on Frontier a couple of years ago and I thought it was awesome, it was way better than United. Obviously you can't bring it back, but it was a brand new aircraft and these people were super friendly and they knew exactly what they were doing. So it wasn't this, this constant back and forth and everyone hates everyone. I thought it's awesome and they seem to do way better now, Allegiant as well, um, recovering from, from COVID. Yeah, I think the leisure airlines have generally recovered more quickly uh, because, I mean, one, one of the trends that I see, some of the trends rather, kind of coming forward with COVID is leisure travel will recover more quickly than business travel, domestic travel before international and younger people before older people. So that bodes well for the Spirits, Allegiance, Frontiers, Southwest. Uh, not so well for the United Delta of America. So, so what is your outlook on the travel industry past COVID? Uh, some people say, you know, everything is going to be different and we're all going to go around in PPE equipment. And others feel, um, I, I would be, would include myself now into this category, others feel that, you know, give it two or three years, and it's going to be pretty much the same, maybe slightly better and more efficient than what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, my answer would be somewhat down, you know, in, in the middle of like some things will go back to what we see as normal, but some things will change, right? So if you look at what happened after September 11th, 2001, there became this focus on security. And this yeah. is now 19 years later. And that focus, in large part, is still with us, right? I mean, That's people true. willingly yeah. subject themselves around the world uh, to much more stringent security regulations than we had in the year 2000. Uh, so I do think, going forward, that there will be some things as a result of COVID, whether that's mask wearing or temperature checks or something, there will be some things that stick with us in travel and that that will be with us for a long time. But I think that, like you said, will there be a bounce back to normal? I, I see that as well, right? I mean, I don't think that what we experience right now today in November of 2020, uh, so many people sitting at home afraid to travel, that, that's not going to last forever. Uh, one of my least favorite words is the word never. So you hear these announcements yeah. like uh, business travel will never return or conferences and events will never be what they once were. So, you know, ne never is a long time. Uh, so the American Airlines stock price will never uh, go below 30 bucks. What was it with Doc Parker said? Um, yes. That was a bad one. <laughs> yeah. So I don't like the word never. I do think that it will be a while. And if we're being honest about the airline industry, it's instructive to look at what's happened in past recessions and see how long that takes to recover. So if you look at the recession of like 2000, 2001, for the most part, it wasn't until 2007 that the, depending on what you're measuring, whether that's revenue or revenue per passenger kilometers, uh, passengers, something like that. But a lot of those financial metrics did not return to the 2000 levels until 2007, so six years after the recession. Yeah. Similarly, after the 2008-9 recession, uh, those levels didn't return until 2015. So again, you're looking at six, seven years later. And so now, if you extrapolate that and look at COVID, COVID happened in 2020, what we're really talking about is at least 2026 before full recovery 
And because COVID has been a lot more severe than what's happened in the past, I would say, you know, you have to give a range. You can't say it's exactly 2026. But I think really, if you look at like American Airlines and United, and if you look at some of the metrics that they hit the high watermark in 2019. So, you know, it's important to be specific when people say recovery. So when will, let's just take United Airlines, when will United Airlines recover? Well, you know, 2020 is a washout, but in 2021, will they be able to add flights back and make money? I think there's a very good possibility of that, right? And certainly by 2022, they should definitely be able to make money. But if what you're talking about is hitting those 2019 numbers again, that very realistically is probably 2026 to 2030, somewhere in there. Well, that's a pretty dark projection. But it's, but it's very realistic. Yeah, I mean, I probably agree with you. Um, <laughs> I guess the, the measurement, I mean, if, if you're talking about total, total revenue um, that probably lags behind um, profitability might come back earlier mm-hmm. or later. Uh, yeah. the, the, the big issue, obviously, is uh, international flights and mm-hmm. the, the panic that um, I guess was initially created by the people themselves and that it uh, moved into the government's corridors and now there's this confusing array, even Europe can't agree on one, confusing array of entry restrictions and uh, some of them seem to make sense, uh, some of them I feel make no sense at all. And right. That I was talking with a friend yesterday who's in uh, Dubai at the moment, yeah. uh, kind of on business, and he said the the, the COVID experience by airline is ridiculous because, like, on Fly Dubai, they turn off the in-flight entertainment because of COVID. That's it. Uh, and then he and I were talking about, like, on Turkish. So on Turkish, they used to be very famous for a pretty fancy meal service. But now that's been scaled back to cold meals and boxes because of COVID. I know. I was flabbergasted. I was flabbergasted. I just flew them two weeks yeah. ago. And... Uh, they served me an economy meal in business. I'm like, okay, maybe because business is full, I mean, maybe they're gonna apologize and just bring the meal later. And I mean, it, it, it wasn't even a warm meal. So yeah, you're right, you're right. There's gotta be some middle ground. And I guess the, the, the trouble is that nobody really knows what to do about it. Everyone is trying to virtual signal and put cleaning on their web page and uh, is uh, telling everyone that this is gonna be safe or the opposite is safe. For the next carrier. Yes. But, you know, but Lufthansa, I'm told, is more or less in business and first class offering the same level of premium food service as they Indeed. did pre pandemic. Yeah, I just, we just flew them a couple of weeks before we went back from, from Europe. We, we just went to, to Greece and uh, we went out on uh, Lufthansa business class, which was completely empty. And uh, food service was better than ever. And since there were, I mean, business class wasn't completely empty, but economy was like 30 people, maybe mm-hmm. 350. And this, the food service was probably better than ever. It was delicious, and we got full attention from the flight attendants. And they actually cared. They wanted to care because, you know, they hadn't seen a lot of passengers in six months. They said. So, you know, it just depends. But it's, it's funny to me the different ways that airlines handle this because sometimes it's the exact opposite, right? So you see yeah. Lufthansa doing the food service and Turkish cutting it back. You see Turkish not giving amenity kits. But then Singapore Airlines, which didn't have amenity kits in business uh, until recently, their practice has been if you need a toothbrush or 
uh, slippers, socks, eye shades, something like that. They pass them out to those who need them, or you can get them in the laboratory. But now, because of COVID, Singapore Airlines is introducing a business class amenity kit, I'm, I'm told. So, on yeah, one hand, you have is. Turkish taking it away, Singapore introducing it, and for the exact same reason, allegedly. Yeah. Well, it's 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 not well. I sometimes feel like the psychological damage we've done by telling everyone how dangerous it is to fly, dangerous it is to fly, and the evidence is just not there. The, the, the infections that happen. In fact, the evidence is the opposite. Exactly. The, I mean, it's it's still it's not easy to actually pin it down where you got an infection, but from from what we've seen, the um, the studies that came out, it was one two weeks ago was an extremely small number of confirmed infections during the flight. It must have been below 100 out of mm-hmm. all the passengers, I don't know, a billion passengers that flew since March. One of the most uh, eye-popping statistics that I saw from, I think, the United Airlines CEO, I think it was United, uh, was that the COVID infection rate among their flight attendants is lower than the COVID infection rate of their ground employees. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, actually being in the air is safer than being on the ground. Yeah. But if you stop and think about it, it makes sense. Because on all these airlines, like United, they are mandating masks, they have the HEPA filters going, and they're paranoid about cleaning. Versus people on the ground, just living their everyday life, are not necessarily doing those things. Yeah, I mean, there was always a worst-case scenario that, that people posted on Twitter, you know, back in April. And there were studies before that they did about SARS and other infectious diseases. If one person sneezes with or without mask, obviously having a mask is better. It would affect up to 45 people before it even reached the filters. Mm-hmm. So if you say you, you could get COVID, and I think we are trying, we are finding out now that you need a certain viral load if you just have literally one cell, we're just finding out more about how this infection actually works. And if the viral load is not high enough, say it's literally just a few cells that come out of someone's mouth, then you won't get infected. I mean, like a few thousand, a few million. Um, I'm obviously not an expert, but there seems to be a minimum uh, that is only really happening at close contact. Unfortunately, not right. in, in, an, in an airplane, which of course nobody knew in March or April. But I feel like the, the psychological damage is done. It's almost like a 9-11 where you feel like every single person who speaks Arabic is a terrorist. And you like you literally just wait for that moment when the, when the bomb Very, very similar, right? And uh, there, there are certainly in, in the time after 9-11, but you know, even, even maybe not right now, but in the past few years, there's still people It's like, oh my gosh, you know, there's a, an Arabic-speaking person on my plane. Ah, we're going to die. It's like, okay. You know, Might be the pilot. speaks Arabic on your plane, you're going to die. Yeah, it's the, it's the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was really worried, though. I was, I was sitting next to a gentleman on a flight to D.C., and we were just coming in to land, and, uh, you know, you, you have to be in your seat and buckled up. And he jumped up, um, ran through the aisle, and, and started praying, but, but, but really convulsively, it seemed. Like, uh, uh, he was really quiet the whole flight, and then suddenly he had the urge. He didn't go up slowly and, and start praying. He just ran around the cabin. I'm like, whoa, wow. this is not a good sign. But nothing happened. He just sat down a minute later. The, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, but people are going to panic because, in part, 
the media and the public perception kind of encourages that. So, you know, this kind of see something, say something, and now you're going to have that with COVID. You have people, you know, they see somebody nearby without a mask and they, they freak out. It's like, okay, just because the person doesn't have a mask on doesn't mean they have COVID and it doesn't mean even if they did, they're going to infect you. So try to keep it in perspective a little bit. I mean, yes, people should wear a mask, but you've got to keep stuff in perspective. Yeah, I'm totally with you. It's, it's, I think it's hard for most people to figure out what's the truth. And that's been true for the last couple of years because we have less real connections and we don't really know who to trust anymore. So it's, it's more cumbersome for people to figure out the truth because they have to do all the research themselves and um, find sources that are more trustful. And I think we all have lost trust in our institutions. Well, the problem, too, with the internet is people now have their own sources of truth. So yeah. your truth can be different than mine. Yeah. Because the sources that you may go look for and trust might be different than my sources. And we could literally have the complete opposite conclusion, which is what you have in the U.S. Uh, with people who, you know, on one hand, they're like, have to wear a mask, and then there's people on the other side that say, no, you know, you should never wear a mask. Yeah, that's, I mean, the statistics don't help. Um, you know, every country counts the COVID deaths differently. Yeah. Um, if they, it's, it's someone who only tested positive for COVID in the last four weeks can be accounted as COVID death. And um, the number of infections in many countries, it's only been counted if you actually have symptoms that you need um, care in a hospital, then you're a COVID case. But otherwise, you're not a COVID case. So we in the U.S. count everyone who tested positive, including, you know, probably 1% or higher false positives rates. So it's, it's, it's a nightmare. And I think we will be... People have been struggling, um, especially in March and April. And since then, there's been so many numbers that fortunately turn out to be much better than we all thought. But this uptick has been slow. And I saw Hawaiian Airlines, United Airlines jump uh, yesterday, the stock prices, because this COVID vaccine sounded good. But then the next day they said, oh, it might be another year before we can actually yeah, distribute I mean, it. You know, the, the, the vaccine can get approved tomorrow. And it's going to be a while to produce enough doses and get them distributed to the point where there is a substantial portion of the population that has immunity. That's, you know, even, even if that happens tomorrow, yeah. that's, that's a year plus. And don't forget, too, that all these people who deny science and refuse to wear masks, I can pretty much guarantee those are going to be the exact same people who refuse to get a vaccine. Probably. <laughs> yeah, most likely, most likely. Um, I mean, there's, there's been amazing success stories in Asia of countries that haven't done anything, like Japan and Taiwan, um, and there's Sweden, obviously, um, that has been a success story. And when, when I went to Europe, the, um, there were only three destinations that were really um, had traffic. One was Turkey, um, because it has uh, COVID restrictions and is outside of the Schengen zone, obviously. It is Sweden um, that has the same entry restrictions, but the, uh, the travel inside the European Union has been going on. So there were a lot of flights and they were relatively full. And there was Greece, which uh, now is under lockdown, but wasn't last month and um, had uh, tons of passengers. Basically, everyone in the European Union seemed to go to Greece because they didn't have these big outbreaks that Spain and Italy had. So a ton of Brits went to Greece. Um, so you, that was apparent in Munich because the airport was otherwise empty. There's nobody there. Mm -hmm. 
So it is a convenience factor and it's a psychological factor. Uh, I feel like the Europeans do slightly better on the psychological side, not so much on the, on the convenience side. And um, right. we, we in the US have really messed up that, uh, that psychological uh, topic. So I hope it's going to rebound because everyone has made everyone really scared. Yeah, and you know, for the travel industry to recover, we need people to be, I mean, it doesn't have to be 100%, but you need people to be directionally in agreement about this set of situations making safe. If you have 50% of the people who say, well, you've got to wear a mask and socially distance, and the other 50% of the people say you should never wear a mask and you should mix and mingle together, that is just not going to work. Far as I'm talking very practically, as far as getting the travel industry to recover. Yeah, but you know that problem is everywhere. So I went when you go to Greece. I, I mean, I spent a month in Greece last month. Uh, the outside airports, basically nobody wears a mask. Um, exceptions, of course, hospitals and supermarkets for whatever reason. Um, but restaurants were open. You could eat wherever you wanted. That there was no social life um, restrictions that were actually taken seriously. And um, that that is quite an undertaking to make everyone wear a mask. And you would get the same protection if you were just you know, a better mask um, mm -hmm. yourself. So it is a tough undertaking um, to really cram down the government on that specific issue where I'm fully with you. I mean, wearing a mask is, is a good idea. And uh, strangely, in a lot of these places like Sweden, Taiwan, Japan, they wear masks, and they always did, well, like Japan in Asia. Well, Taiwan, people have worn masks for a long time. I agree, I agree, because they, they've had uh, similar viruses before, but it's definitely not 100%. It's maybe like no, 50, but 60. I think any, but but the, I think any percent helps, right? I mean, yeah, maybe. any percent maybe. when you have a significant percent. I just, you know, what, what I feel is, is a big driver for myself for travel, and that's obviously different depending on each individual, is just the sense of adventure, the sense of curiosity, the sense of, uh, I, I want to see what else is in this world. Um, like Elon wants to go to Mars. Um, you know, first, I, I, I would recommend him to go to pretty much any country in Africa. Yeah. That, that would be equally interesting. Uh, it, it's definitely not looking like Mars. That's not what I wanted to say. And uh, there is, there's a lot of adventure. Um, just just by being there, um, just getting out of your comfort zone. And for this, not everyone needs to wear a mask. I mean, I'm, I'm, so most of these countries are definitely have a high crime rate. They definitely have a high crime rate against foreigners and tourists. But it's a great experience, and it's worthwhile even accepting a higher rate of crime, death, diseases. Mm -hmm. And for this, not everyone needs to comply. That's what I wanted to say. So it's, it's right. okay if only a good number of people make this country a safe place to explore, and there's still 1%, 2%, whatever the numbers are, maybe much lower, who are following you around, who are tailing you straight from the airport, like I had this in Nigeria. People were tailing me right from the airport, and they, <laughs> that never stopped, right? And I hired police officers and private security, and it was all low-key, but it's that's part of doing business in Nigeria, I guess. Yes, exactly. Now, there's definitely some places with high crime, um, but... Uh, yeah, no, there's a lot to explore on this earth. You don't have to go to Mars. You're absolutely right. You're ahead of me as far as number of countries, but... Um, well, what's your favorite? A lot of people, yeah, you, you were saying... People e always ask this, 80. favorite. And, yeah, and, and I never know what to say. I don't either, but what I've done is I've cheated, and I've come up with a list by continent. So I say, okay, okay in North America, I'll choose the United States. In South America, I will choose Chile. 
in South Af in Africa, I like South Africa. Admittedly, I haven't explored as much of Africa as I have uh, other continents. Antarctica, I have not been. Australia, Australia yeah. is easy because there's just Australia. So yeah. I don't count New Zealand as part of Australia. Otherwise, I might, might choose New Zealand. Um, it's not going to go down well with Kiwis. Yeah, Europe is very hard. Uh, if I have to choose just one, I might go with Italy. Uh, I like it a lot. And in, in Asia, Asia is also very hard since it's so big, but I might choose the place of my birth, Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, I feel, I mean, I've been to like 125, 127. Yeah, I'm so impressed. But I feel like there's, even if, say, you go to Russia and then you go to Moscow and then you're like, uh, you haven't seen anything. So you at least have to go to Siberia. And Siberia is, you know, like Alaska is ginormous. So you have to go to a couple different places just to get a feel for it. And uh, so is China. I went like three times to China in very different parts of the, the country. If you just go but to look, Shanghai, look, it's kind and of even cheating. a place like the United States. And forget the whole United States. Just sure. take the state of California. Yeah. If you went to San Francisco and then uh, the Mojave Desert and then uh, up to Lake Tahoe and then down to the beaches, you know, off Monterey, that's four different places all in the same state with a completely different feel. Yeah. Oh, California is special on that, though. I feel like in Nevada, it's a little similar. Once you've seen right. Reno, you kind of can guess Vegas. Yes, that's true. So, California but, but got lucky took, with that. If you took the United States, as my point, I mean, sure. you know, people used to say, how come so few people in the United States have a passport? And it's higher now, but only because of recent laws for travel to Canada and the Caribbean. But the, the reason is that I've often said is, well, because the United States on its own is a big country. There's a lot to see. True. Yeah. Um, and it varies a lot. I mean, the diversity is... is not just in nature, but especially in nature, is, is pretty striking here. Um, only a few other countries are that, that lucky. So, like right. my, my birth country, Germany, you kind of, you get two different oceans, kind of, if you call the Baltic Sea an ocean, which kind of isn't, and the North Sea. Um, they're pretty similar, but otherwise you get a couple of mountains, but it's a very, very similar country. It's kind of like going from northern Pennsylvania to southern Pennsylvania. Yes. I've traveled quite a lot in Germany, so I'm yeah. very familiar. It's, it's a small place. It's a small place. I want to ask you something about Thailand because you're an expert on this. Um, you know, Thailand, I was the last 10, 20 years, um, I felt 20 years ago it was like my favorite place in the world. If you, someone would have asked me what's your favorite, it would have been Thailand right away. And I went back as often as I could, um, like twice a year, sometimes to Thailand. Um, and these are small islands. They were. They were rustic, and they were um, adventuresome, they were young people, and it was cheap, and the food was excellent, like, the weather was perfect, it, I, I never thought it could get any better. Went back 10 years ago, and it was a shadow of its former self, and not just Koh Phi Phi, or like uh, all the other little islands I went to before, um, they all looked like Khao San Road, and mm -hmm. they were struck by mass tourism, obviously there's a huge Chinese influence that just excavated that. And um, over the years, I, and I feel this is a natural development wherever you go, but I felt in Thailand it was exceptionally fast um, that it went downhill and became the place that, you know, it was more to be described as seedy and um, mm -hmm. touristy and, and, and unappealing from, from marvelous just 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, we know this story. This keeps on going usually and goes to different parts of the country. But I felt like Thailand was 
a lot of places in Thailand were on the same trajectory simultaneously. And now, and I always felt there's way too many people there. So, uh, you could just say, well, I mean, there shouldn't be 40 million tourists, certain kinds of tourists. Well, this year say. there's not. <laughs> yeah, this year there's none. And then, I, then I, I was like, why doesn't Thailand reopen? And then I saw the surveys of Thais, and they said, we don't want tourists at all anymore. Like, it's, like maybe in five years or whatever, but we're going to be like Laos. We, we just don't want anyone here, and we're going to throttle the number of tourists. Do you think this is going to stay that way? And Thailand is just going to say, no, bye-bye. There's too many people in Thailand that depend on the tourists for their income. So, you know, I think it's something like 15, 1.5, 15% of GDP or thereabouts. So uh, that's pretty significant. It's not like the Maldives or something like that, but that's pretty significant. So they need the tourists back. And so you're going to see the tourists come back. But it's funny that you mentioned Laos because I remember in the 90s when uh, my parents were living there and, you know, there, there was a lot of Thai pressure on the Lao government to kind of open up. Back in those days, they did not really allow tourism. And they were, the, the Thais were pressuring the Lao to open up and said, hey, look, you can have all this tourism and you can be just like us. And I remember yeah. some of the Lao officials are like, is that what we want? <laughs> yeah, the opposite of what we want. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm struck by Thailand. It's like, it's that beautiful. And, uh, you know, obviously, it's, it, every, every place changes. The Philippines are a similar example. But mm-hmm. Thailand seemed to change exceptionally fast in a bad way. Well, because the, the more tourists and growth you have, the faster it's going to change, right? So it also depends on the baseline. So I think Laos has changed a lot in 20 years, but because they started with, you know, like four tourists, and so, yeah, you know, true. you get up to 4,000, uh, it, it, that's a big change. Uh, in Thailand, I mean, I can remember in maybe the 80s, Pattaya, uh, outside of Bangkok, I was like, oh, that's kind of a interesting beach place, but my parents said that, like, in the 60s, the Thailand, uh, Pattaya was very glamorous, but by the 80s, it was like, you know, a dump. And yeah. then they got it cleaned up. And then Phuket, my parents went to their went on their honeymoon to Phuket in 1969. And they said there was one hotel. Yeah. Hotel Phuket was the only hotel in Phuket. Oh, that's and, you know, and then over the years, of course, it, it grew and grew and grew. And then Phuket's become overdone. But then some of these other islands, the ones that might be, you know, in any given year. So in, in the year 2000 some undiscovered island that you might have gone to 20 years later, it's now overrun with tourists. I mean, that's just kind of what happens. I mean, but if you talk about fast change, I mean, what I saw in Dubai, I've never seen anything like that anywhere uh, because that was some fast change. I remember in like 2008, a friend came to visit in Dubai and he was like, "Uh, the last time I was here was in the year 2000. And he says that I don't recognize it. And I said, that's probably a little bit like saying you've been to Los Angeles before in 1940. Yeah, yeah. no, Dubai is insane. Um, I, I totally agree with you. The trouble with Dubai is to, it's kind of, you know, you say Elon Musk would decide he wants to develop a city outside of, of Vegas. And he just, and, and Bezos joins, you know, it's just the rocket city, whatever that is. It's like, it's like on Mars. And they just pull their money together and they built and there's like five Starbucks per building and there's three um, um, olive, what's the olive tree, the Italian uh, chain. So it's extremely artificial by, by just a ton of money. That's how Dubai feels to me. You're going to correct me on this, but 
I, I, I take a ton of money that I earn somewhere else. It has nothing to do with, with how this individual venture will make money. You know, certainly some places will make money. Most of them, it seems like, don't. But I'm just going to throw this in the desert and while I admire this entrepreneurial idea. It's not a city, right? It's, a, it's an entrepreneurial business plan being executed by Sri Lankan laborers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think they're right. Um, but, uh, you know, Dubai is not for everyone, certainly. No, I mean, I don't, don't want to diss it. I'm just saying, it's yeah. in Thailand, it's an entrepreneurial growth. So tourists come in, you provide local services, food, restaurants, and it grows. And you build a bigger resort, and, uh, you know, more people come, and then you build an even bigger resort. And I think this is awesome. This is this is the kind of the, the smaller-scale entrepreneurship who usually would yield better results. What I... And I think this is the way it works, probably. It's because the entrepreneurship works in such a max of, of individual family entrepreneurship. It, the trouble is to just go to the next level. Like, well, what Thailand needs is more Dubai-style development. You know, when people pull together their money and just say, oh, we're going to redevelop this whole island, make it really nice. Um, and we're all going to put in X amount of money and uh, get hired to to manage this property for us. This, doesn't seem to happen in Thailand as easily as it does happen somewhere else. So they yeah. never really go yeah. up to the next scale of, you can have mass tourism, but it could still be awesome. Like, I don't know, Singapore, you know, it's, it's awesome and it's a ton of people. The, uh, you know, the difference with Singapore, Dubai and Thailand is kind of the dictatorial government that just tells you this is how it's going to be. Okay, but do we need a dictator to manage our, our economy? No, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we need a dictator, but I'm saying that there are benefits of having centralized control versus uh, dispersed control. Right, no, no, I'm, I'm being facetious. Um, I'm, you know, <laughs> it's, when, if I you believe... I will say, I mean, yeah. there, there were definitely some positives in Dubai to yeah. being under dictatorial rule. I, I, like, for, like what? Well, I mean, just example. in terms of the, uh, the planned infrastructure that happened, right? So, like, in yeah. the U.S., and I'm, I'm certainly not advocating for a dictatorship. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> this, is thing, this thing is being recorded. You know yeah, I'm aware. So yeah. That's why I have to say I'm not advocating for a dictatorship. I'm saying there Might are, there are advantages tomorrow. where you can have one guy that says, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. I mean, just like with a company, right? Does it take like these technocratic dictatorships? I mean, isn't this something that you can do? I, I follow bunch of people on, on Twitter who talk about this crypto economy. So the idea is that you pool ideas and crypto together and then you can literally create cities out of it. Um, it's not any different than, than it works now to pool money in a, in a company, but it's it's taking, um, it's freer and you can pool money from individuals as well as from, from, from companies. So it's, it does, it leaves out all the restrictions that often create the trouble in the marketplace. So we, we we associated with the failure of the market economy, but in what it actually was is that there were the wrong kind of incentives and regulations yes. that, that messed up what, what should have yes, happened, I which agree. should have been a better outcome for everyone involved. Because it would make more money, right? So it, it fits into the market economy and better roads. It's it's not mm-hmm. it doesn't stand against it. It's it's, yeah. it's a tough topic. It's a tough topic. I, I don't I don't have a good a good idea. From from all the places I've been to, um, what what really strikes me about Africa and uh, this, this is really related to that, is you, you would feel like the, the infrastructure development is crap. Um, you have a dictator up there, but still the infrastructure is, is a problem, like or semi-dictator in many places. Yeah, well, recently that's a different changed. kind of dictator than you have in Singapore and Dubai. 
Right, right. But, <laughs> I mean, but there is a lot of individual freedom for people, even if you have a dictatorial government that doesn't really care about you and doesn't provide you with basic services like public safety. Um, it just doesn't do it. You're basically on your own. The good news is though, there's, a, there's a lot of personal freedom that you can use uh, and, and shape your life the way you want that might be inefficient and um, roads would be actually make everyone much better off but it gives you this boost of, of freedom and at some point you you know you leave these countries and you're like um, so is development always better than freedom I, I would say the answer is no yeah I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted when I come back you know you, you go there and you're like oh wait there's a ton of poor people and it's they, they really don't help out the poorest parts of their society. But in the end, um, is it people's choice or like failure of choice that, that these yeah, differences you know, exist? Like, like I said at the, at the beginning of the call, I've been to a lot of places. And so I, I do have a perspective that for the most part, things aren't necessarily bad or good in one place. They're just different. Yeah. You're postmodernist. Like I said, of course, I you're have my right? So, like, yeah. you know, give, give, given, given the choice between having running water and no running water, well, I choose running water. <laughs> no. Yes. Um, that's very philosophical. I think you did this Jacques, Jacques Derrida, the, the postmodernism, which is a big, was a big topic in, in the social sciences in the last 10 years. And they basically make that claim that every, every outcome is acceptable because it exists. Mm -hmm. It's depending. There is no... There is no metric to really say this is a better or worse outcome, right? Which is like, a fast. Everyone thing. can make their own personal choice, right? So, yeah. like I, I, I said, water or no running water, right? That's an easy choice. But what about this one? What about freedom or electricity? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, having good one. And I thought about this recently because I was having a political discussion with someone, and I realized, and I brought that example up because living in Dubai, we didn't have freedom. But I had electricity. Yeah. No. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the choice that I made. You know what? I, I got to see some parts of Eastern Germany, and but but honestly, that's that's how people that's how people argued. I know you, you you're not arguing this way, but they would say, "Oh, we can't open up the borders with with uh, Western Germany because you know then a, everyone would be gone tomorrow," which was true, mm -hmm. and B they would just take all our stuff, so we wouldn't have we wouldn't have electricity, and we. we um, we wouldn't have basic needs met, which is probably true for some parts of the population. I mean, the basic needs wouldn't be met, but in socialism they are. You know, they're, they're definitely being met, um, but just those, not others. And um, it's a tough trade-off. It's a really tough trade-off. It um, is. I mean, that's that's life, right? You yeah. have to make trade-offs. I mean, there's there's no perfect place. Uh, yeah. And anybody who says it's perfect, they haven't experienced enough, right? I was talking a month or two ago with someone who lived in. Tucson, Arizona, and she mentioned to me that she's, you know, born and raised in Tucson, uh, and she's never lived anywhere but Tucson, but she's very confident that Tucson is the best place on earth. Okay. <laughs> exactly. I've never been. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't I know. know what to say. Yeah. But my point is, okay, if that's all you've ever seen, how, how, how do you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a quandary, yeah. Uh, so exploration keeps us from from repeating mistakes in our life. So you know, there's a great quote that I like uh, by the patron saint of travelers. It's the world is a great book. Those who do not travel read only a page. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm talking about the book, um, 
Let's look, look into this page. You, you were mentioning you have some entrepreneurial ventures that you're cooking. Yes. And I wanted to know what, how you're going to change the world with those. Sure. So I don't know that we're going to change the world, but uh, um, certainly there will be an impact. So I'll talk about them, uh, I guess, one at a time. So uh, one, one is Backpacker Panda. And this is building a network of youth hostels. It's about a five-year-old company. We've been hit pretty hard by the pandemic. So back on March 1st, we had eight properties open. And we're looking to expand across Europe, Southeast Asia, and the United States. But now, because of COVID, we have only one property open, which is in India, in Rishikesh, in the Himalayan foothills. It's and a pretty town, Rishikesh. It is. It's and fantastic. So, but, you know, it's, it's, so we're kind of like the business is a little bit on life support, and we're clawing our way back. But I think the original vision still holds. And I mentioned earlier that I see some trends in travel coming back as far as leisure, as far as young people, as far as uh, domestic. And I think that means that in the backpacking hostel space, that will be one of the early segments to recover in travel. Uh, so I feel good about that business. But the original vision was kind of to be, like a lot of good ideas, it came out of someone's personal experience. So in this case, Kumar, the CEO and founder, he is Indian, but he studied in Germany and in Canada. And during the time that he was studying in Europe and North America, he backpacked around and discovered that hostels were really different from one location to another. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be, you know, a way to know in terms of standards. So that was really the vision. So the way I used to describe it is that we wanted to be the Marriott of youth hostels, not Marriott in a luxurious way, but Marriott in terms of common standards of safety, amenity, a loyalty program. You know, if you went to a country tomorrow that you've never been to and you saw a Marriott there without even setting foot inside it, you have a pretty good idea of what to expect. And so that's what we were trying to do with the youth hostel. Is anyone, is anyone running a chain for, for hostels right now? Yes, there are some other chains. Okay. So uh, actually, I would say one of our biggest competitors uh, is, was, I mean, right now, they're surviving better than we are. It's called Generator. Uh, and the, uh, they acquired a US chain last fall, just about a year ago. So they have, I'm guessing, I don't know, a dozen to 20 properties, maybe. Okay, and they wide. just manage them. They don't own them, right? They don't develop them. Like they no, don't I think they might actually own some of them. I'm not 100% okay. sure, but they're big. Okay. Uh, so that's like us. Uh, they're even bigger than ours. Each. So a lot of hostels are like 12, 20 rooms traditionally. The generator ones are like, they'll have like 300 beds, 400 beds, and that's kind of where we were heading. So, what do you, you know, what do you think of the of the um, hotels in Japan? The two hotels? Yes. So, I I oh, haven't so stayed in awesome. yeah. yeah, I haven't stayed in one, but uh, I've only stayed in the more you know Western style hotels in Japan. So I, I I tried them out, and I I was kind of my last resort because everything was like two hundred bucks in Kyoto, and um, they were forty five, so not super cheap. But I'm like, okay, this is just a night, and I'm gonna fly out in tomorrow in the morning. But I was amazed how, and it's kind of a hostel style, like you have shared bathrooms, which is a little mm -hmm. bit annoying. And um, you sleep right next to each other. Um, so it's, it's kind of the same 
space I think it takes up as a dorm, as a dorm room. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Everyone's going to snore and it's going to be loud the whole day. And it, it looks like a coffin. I'm thinking, I mean, I'm pretty claustrophobic, so I had really low expectations, but none of those obviously was warranted. This is Japan. The bathrooms were perfectly clean. And once you, you get into your, your tube, into your, 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 your little coffin, it's almost completely soundproof. Um, I didn't feel claustrophobic at all. I, I had some of the best sleep I've ever had for 10, 12 hours. And um, it was extremely cozy. I was like, man, this is how it feels when you sleep in a cave. Mm-hmm. So I, I was blown away by it, and I was like, "Whoa!" Every, I mean, it's, it takes a lot of pressure to get someone into trying this, but once they do, most people will come out uh, really happy. Yeah, no, I haven't done it, but uh, you have to do that. It. Yeah, it's 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 totally struck me very unexpectedly as a yeah. as a wonderful way to to share. You know, obviously that's the idea of a dorm that you don't have a lot of space, and you're in the middle of I don't know, really expensive city, Stockholm. And uh, you can still afford to be in a, in a location that, that you find of interest. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a Japanese hostel type of thing almost. Yeah, it is. It's basically a dorm room, but uh, you know, they do it in a Japanese way. Uh, you know, one of the things that I learned from my time working with Backpacker Panda is that it's not just about the conserving of real estate space and the cheap accommodation. It's really kind of an experience and a lifestyle. And the, of course, most of our travelers are young, but you don't have to be young. But as somebody described it to me, uh, one of the, uh, somebody said, you know, he said, if he goes somewhere and stays in a hotel, and this is a single guy, he said, if he sees a pretty woman at the bar and walks up to her to strike up a conversation, she might or might not be open to having a conversation in a hotel. And he said, however, if I'm at a hostel, 99% she's going to be interested in having a conversation with him. It doesn't mean that she's romantically interested, but she will at least be friendly and open to having a conversation because it's a different mindset, right? The type of person who stays at a hostel, they're looking to meet people, mix, mingle, socialize. It is a real community approach to hostels. I, I, I miss that. I haven't stayed in hostels much simply because... You don't have a lot of private space. You don't have, I mean, sometimes you have a work area, but sometimes you don't. Um, there's a lot of quiet time. But yeah, the community approach, and I, I, if I don't have, um, if I don't find a good hotel, I definitely stay, still, still stay at hostels. I, uh, it's very easy to get the local knowledge that you need uh, at a hostel. You know, I have to read, spend three times as much time to, for the city guides that I do um, to get the same information on Foursquare or Wikipedia or ask other people. Um, at hostels, it's it's the most effective way. Sometimes I just go to hostels and just ask people because that's the quickest way to mm-hmm. get the lowdown on a city yeah. by far. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the hostel business. So I, I'm still bullish on it, but I mean, realistically, we're talking about Q3 of 2021 at the earliest before we see meaningful recovery in that segment. I mean, right now, you know, getting a bunch of people to travel long distances internationally to stay in tight quarters close together. That's not exactly in vogue. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, are, are you going to properties and just pitching the, the, the management of, of that hotel given you by your, by your standard guidebook, your, your handbook? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so what we're actually kind of looking at now for the future is as some of these hotels file for bankruptcy and go under, you know, probably in the coming 12 to 18 months, 
those will represent attractive acquisition targets because the valuations will be much lower than they were a year ago, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. But the uh, the second business is called Sky Squad, and what that is is essentially an airport assistance service. And so, uh, again, it's an idea that was launched because of someone's practical needs. So Julie Melnick, who is the founder and CEO, when she had kids that were young and she traveled with them through airports and on airplanes, she found that that was a pain in the neck. <laughs> and uh, and, and I feels. can remember that well myself. Yeah. And so essentially what we do is, uh, right now we're just in Washington, D.C., but looking to expand nationwide. We'll meet the person curbside as the car pulls up, help them with their bags, their strollers, car seats, kids, whatever, get them checked in. These are airport employees that work for us so they can go through security with the travelers, uh, stay with them all the way until they board the aircraft, and then while they're at the gate or in the lounge or whatever, uh, help them in any way, whether that is watching the kids while someone goes to the restroom or running out to get food to bring back so it's just an airport assistant, and it's very reasonably priced, typically $99 for two hours. And this has, was launched in January of 2020, did well in January and February, then the pandemic hit. Uh, but even in the summer, during the depths of the kind of COVID travel depression, there was still demand. And we realized, you know, there's really a need for a service like this in the US. Oh, I, I absolutely agree uh, with you. These are very common yeah. services in Asia. But in America, we're expected to do everything ourselves as independent people, which is fine until you're the one sitting there with four suitcases, two kids, a stroller, a car seat, and two carry-ons. How are you supposed to manage that if you just have two hands? So I think this is a very valuable service, and I think we're very well positioned to kind of ride the travel wave of recovery up. Yeah. No, I think it's that's a wonderful thing um, to have at any airport. One thing that, that I would say that I found that took me a while um, to understand that is how lounges work. And mm -hmm. it's relatively rare for people to, to walk up to a lounge and pay 50 bucks for some snacks. Right? That kind of seems to be the usual rate. Right. Like you get a couple couple hours, three hours usually is the, the maximum stay that's allowed by most lounges. And if it's not included in your ticket, you can get a lot of stuff for fifty dollars um, mm -hmm. at at an airport restaurant. Uh, it's still expensive, but you get a proper meal, proper entree, and maybe a couple of drinks. And I always felt that lounges. How are you going to compete with this? And obviously, because people just just maybe it's the value, but maybe it's just not on a traveler's mind because the immediate. I think it's part food. of the lounge uh value proposition in the past has been kind of the exclusivity right which is like oh mm -hmm. you know anybody can go to the restaurant but i get to go to the lounge yeah. <laughs> i don't know if that's still true but you know what i wanted to get Maybe it not is... now but that, that's definitely part of it in the past yeah so lounge buddy had a similar system where they basically said there's all these lounges nobody knows how to buy the the tickets or what are the restrictions uh, and what the it, 50 bucks is just too expensive. Why don't we just group them together, maybe if we can guarantee a certain volume and bring the price down to 20 bucks, um, 30 bucks, um, whatever we feel works in that location. But it didn't really take off. And I thought it was a, it was a fantastic mm -hmm. idea. What instead took off, what instead took off is Priority Pass, uh, which sells. Right. No, priority Pass 
and competitors, right? I mean, where yeah. they're essentially aggregating these and selling them primarily through credit card partners. Yeah, for a flat fee. We, we, nobody knows what the exact amount is, but maybe 50 bucks a year per cardholder. Yeah, but it's, it's obviously the economics work, or at least they did pre-COVID. Yeah, and then the, the restaurants kept opening up. So then the, the whole airport was transformed into a big priority pass lounge, at least in San Francisco. <laughs> all the restaurants wanted to join in. And it's like 30 bucks, it's for free right. for, per person. That's incredible. There were some good deals, right? You could go to, in some airports, really nice restaurants and get a priority pass meal credit of like, you know, $30. Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, for a lot of priority pass there. It was unlimited guests. So if you show right. up with like four or five people, there was one guy in Barcelona. He came up, came with like this group of ten, um, this whole Russian family of ten people, and um, you could go to as many restaurants as you wanted. So that that was insane. Um, and obviously, only yeah, I think they cut down on averages. Yeah, they have to get the averages right. But uh, but I was thinking, yeah. you, if you could find something for for children assistance business that you can bundle it um, into an existing business where people only use it on average you know when everyone who has a kid uses it maybe three times a year most people wouldn't use it because we don't have children right now or too old or, um, mm-hmm. that would drive down um, the uh, the cost um, the, the visible cost at least um, and yeah uh, no, that's a good idea I mean we're not there yet because we need to build some scale first as far as footprint around the US or around the world, but once we have that scale, then we talk to like a credit card partner and do something similar to that priority path. Well. Yeah, I, I can see that being extremely helpful. Wow. I traveled with my, with my four-year-olds a couple of times myself. That, that was not easy. We traveled to Japan and uh, it's, it's just being in a lounge, you know, like it's a God-given. Uh, just having a couple, a couple of other people like helping you to manage your kids—that's that's a fantastic. Relief. It's uh, yeah. The uh, anybody who has kids and traveled with them by airplane when they were young, they always get this. But anybody who doesn't have kids or has never traveled by airplane with kids, they don't understand what the value proposition of this business. Yeah, they just kids shouldn't be in business class. That's, <laughs> that seems to be a consensus. And wasn't Emirates where, where you can't bring kids in first class? No, that was uh, Malaysian that they ah. had no kids in first class. Oh, okay. Okay. Business was okay. <laughs> Although, um, yeah, I mean, my kids traveled in business in, even in first class quite a bit uh, back in the day. And uh, my uh, wife told me a story once. This was several years ago, but I guess she was boarding a flight. I think it was like United. and It was a domestic flight, but they had you know, international plane, business class, and they were getting situated. And some guy was like, apparently it's like throwing a fit. He's like, oh my God, kids in business class, ridiculous, ridiculous. And he was apparently making a big stink about it. And then, um, he just wanted to go to the first class. Finally, she said to him, she said something like, she's like, you know, A, you know, we've paid for these tickets. So we have just as much right to be here as you. But B, she said, it seems to me that you are making a much bigger deal out of this and being much more distracting to your, our fellow passengers than my kids are. And then that shut him up right away. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good answer. Um, I wouldn't have come up with that. Uh, but I, I noticed the, the, the flight that we, we took to Munich, there were about 30 people in business class. So it was only about half full, maybe 35. Mm-hmm. But I easily, 
the half of those, so more than one quarter of the passengers in the in the business class cabin were all children under the age of ten. Many of them were like toddlers, like two, three, four, five. Oh wow! And there were none of them in economy. Like literally, in economy, you could have ten seats to yourself, not just one. I mean, a whole row, not just like four seats together. So that was odd. That's definitely something changing in that travel category. You see way more children yeah. than, than ever before. I mean, in, in the Middle East, you know, there's a lot of wealthy people, and so it's very common to see. Uh, kids in business and even first class. But there's a nanny, the sky nanny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've seen also where uh, wealthy families they'll travel, you know, for example, in business class, and they'll have their uh, nanny, you know, in economy, or they'll be in first, and the nanny will be in business. The golfer has a sky nanny. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, they, exactly. They, they were introduced. So that I thought was was pretty cool. Yeah. And then uh, Etihad, I think, recently had some sky nanny as well. But I think oh, okay. that's one of the things that's a, a victim of COVID. They've cut it out. Well, there's a whole history that I only learned when I went to Bahrain between uh, Gulf Air as the original Middle Eastern airline. And Correct. then a, Correct. a lot of people, and I think Abu Dhabi was a big shareholder in this. Mm -hmm. Then they abandoned it in the late 80s and said, no, we just want to copy Emirates now. We're going a different way and we're going to do this better than Emirates. Um, I, I just feel there was never a market for Etihad for this, strangely enough. Uh, yeah, well, I think Etihad, I mean, I don't know if this is literally true, but I get the feeling that it's directionally true, that Etihad launched uh, out of jealousy to Dubai and Emirates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And, you know, so Emirates was the first, and then Qatar, and I say after Gulf Air, because Gulf Air was the original. Uh, so, you know, Dubai split off and then created Emirates, and then... Uh, Qatar split off and created Qatar Airways, then uh, Abu Dhabi split off and created Etihad, and the last was uh, Oman with Oman Air. Yeah. Why is Kuwait Airways so bad? Why, why are they not... I... So they were never part of that Gulf Federation. Um, oh, okay. And I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they have new planes, but just because you have new planes doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've never been to Kuwait, I have to say, but are, they, are, isn't there some... Ooh, I've got one on you, finally. Yeah, yeah. Well, what isn't there some... Uh, there's a lot of commonalities that you go from Bahrain to Saudi Arabia. It's almost like you, it's the same thing, the same country. Um, but I don't know, Kuwait... Bahrain's a lot more liberal. Than Saudi Arabia, yes, but I thought Kuwait is, I don't know, kind of like Dubai? Kuwait is not as liberal as Bahrain. Okay. Not as conservative as Saudi Arabia. Okay, okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've never flown Kuwait Airways. I've flown Saudia quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And that is very, or at least used to be very average, but I guess they've improved. Yeah, it can be very shaky. It's, it's almost like no, nobody really cares. Nobody is awake. Well, like, including the pilot. This whole flight is like, all, everything is on autopilot. And everything is being ignored in, in your way. It's yeah. very odd to fly Saudia. So should I tell you about the third business? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know yeah. you have that many businesses you're involved in. You're doing this <laughs> as an angel or you're like hands-on uh, as well? So I, I call it being involved. So I, uh, I like to be involved in a few different business, ideally three to five. Because, uh, and when I say involved, that means either as a investor, a board member, a consultant, a part-time employee, but just essentially having my hand in the pot because... A, I have ADD, not medically, but 
I like to, I get distracted easily, so I like to have a few different things to concentrate on. But two is, it's actually a diversification. Now, yes, it's diversification within travel, tourism, and hospitality, but it's, I mean, but those are my passions, so that's what I want to focus on, and so therefore it's good to be diversified within the sector. But that's your full-time, your full-time work now, or you're running Yeah, Yeah, pretty much else. I'm spending, I mean, it, the percentages vary around a bit, but uh, yeah, I'm spending solidly probably 80% of my time on these three companies. Yeah. And uh, so the third one is called Charity Pro Travel. And what it is essentially is a online booking engine like Expedia, like Priceline. And the difference is that it's focused on helping charities and nonprofit organizations raise money. And the way that it does that is we market it to charities and nonprofits. And then those charities and nonprofits encourage their employees and their employees' families and friends, their donors, their partners, etc., to book travel, whether that's business or leisure travel, on this site, Charity Pro Travel. The pricing is exactly the same as you get on Priceline or Expedia, but a small portion of that commission revenue then flows back to that charity. So essentially it's travel that people would have booked anyway uh, and not paying any more for, but you're just doing a little bit of good for a charity that you support. So Amazon has something similar called the Amazon Smile, um, yeah. where people, charities, and a lot of schools actually use Amazon Smile, and then a part of your purchase flows back to the organization. So this is Amazon Smile, except specifically for travel. Okay. That's a wonderful idea. I, and I remember a lot of people have been playing with this, this guaranteed margin um, that... Uh, this hotel price monopoly, um, like Rocket Miles, uh, is kicking back miles. Um, I think it's 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 great to have a, yes. a charity reason behind that. I, I, so, I you know it's not going to change the world, which was kind of the beginning question you asked. But you might, it will help, right? You um, might, you might. Um, you know, here in Silicon Valley, people want your idea to change everything and uh, quickly. You know, it's got, everything's going to be like TikTok. Um, I'm more of a progress, not perfection person. Yeah. It's great if you, can, if you can revolutionize the world and change everything, but uh, I incremental progress is probably more typical. That's true. That's absolutely true. You wanted to get your, your judgment call on what's going to happen with this whole travel tech, consumer travel tech, if Google takes over, because that seems to what's happening with Google Flights and... Mm -hmm. um, with the hotel booking engine, which isn't as big yet, but um, uh, the Google Flights engine has gotten pretty nice. Um, yes, it gives you. That's what I use for looking at flights. Yeah, it gives you 365 day view, which was impossible to get before, and uh, it doesn't do such a good job with notifications, um, but it is pretty wonderful that you can browse. Um, I think five or six different destinations, and uh, see where, um, from what month you get the best deal. From my perspective. That seems to be the end of Kayak and the Metas, many of the Metas, and uh, also Expedia and Priceline. Well, yes and no, because a lot of those Google flight results come from those, right? Right, but they source it from, the, it from the owners, and Google can just, the same, I mean, they have all these Google but interfaces. in practice, that's not always what happens. Like, you might search on Google Flights, and then you find that uh, the best price is actually on Expedia. 
That's true. Um, okay. That's true. So they don't get the search traffic. That's definitely not the end of it. It saves them money. They just do the booking. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. I always felt so in like... In essence, they've become their own meta search. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I, I like Google a lot, and I think that it's great as a consumer to use their services. Uh, but it's not everything, right? I mean, there's definitely times when I personally have found a better deal elsewhere. But I, I might have started with Google, and then that gave me an idea. But then I find an actual, like, uh, not a hidden fare, but a fare that is only promoted through certain channels uh, elsewhere. So it's not yeah. everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's for sure. The, the Google is a, isn't as price competitive. It's, it's very convenient very fast mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of our daily daily bread and butter what we do at Mighty Travels to here we, we do identify and send out links to Google Flights but most of the better prices once you find dates for the, the best price you see on Google Flights the prices of often up to 20-30% are with individual travel agencies many of them in Europe and many of them in Germany for whatever reason um, mm-hmm. that they seem to have obviously they also have um, the interface in 200 different languages. There's a lot of travel agencies. One of them was German, um, a Greek guy who lived in Germany. That that company went bust. But there's tons of like little travel agencies who beat those prices. And I wonder how they do it. Um, they never really tell. Um, but they've been doing this consistently for more than a decade. So there is a margin back then. We just don't know yeah. what's the agreement on the back end. No, we don't. Um, but Google has been... Uh you know, and maybe maybe with Google, just like they do with search, right? Part of the value is actually from the data. So, by yeah. seeing where people steer after searching on Google Flights, that information is worth something to someone. True. Yeah. I mean, Google doesn't have to charge for it, right? That's the personalization. Right. Is they can they can sell that off just to AdWords, right? AdWords makes a lot of money from that. This yeah. Just... So if I'm searching for business class fares to Bangkok, for March, and then I don't book anything, but now Google knows I'm interested in that, or at least appear to be interested in that. So then now they can remarket that information to Expedia or to Turkish Airlines or to Cathay Pacific, who can then market to me with good deals to Bangkok. Yeah, that, that's a, this retargeting was really big for a while. I don't know if it still is, but I remember whenever I think it still is. Whenever you go to Etihad or Emirates, that that was like you you couldn't get rid of those ads for two weeks. I think we covered everything I've had, Chris. That that was a yeah. very awesome podcast. Uh, I learned a lot. Okay, Chris. The last question: Where can people reach you? Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge LinkedIn fan and user, so I think that's the best way to connect with me. So if you search for me on LinkedIn, Chris C H R I S. Tom Seth, T-O-M-S-E-T-H. Um, find me there, and I'll connect with you. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Okay.